morning, everybody. I hope and pray that you're all doing well. I know that this is a tough time, especially as we're going through trials as a nation, as a group. Um, I'm just praying for all of you guys. But I'm very excited this morning to start a new sermon series with you guys in the book of James. It's, it's really apropos to what we're doing today, what's going on in the world today. And so I'm excited to talk to you about that. But also, I want you to remember that we are, Katie and myself, are posting every day for the next several days updates or kind of informational videos on this very Facebook page when it comes to the book of James. And we're encouraging you guys to go through the book as well and pray through the book as well as you're reading it. So we would like to have that for you guys. The one thing I want you to remember is it's not going to follow everything that I'm doing sermon-wise. It's more of an overview of each chapter of each verse or sections of verses that might not correspond to how I'm preaching through the book. Because I'd like to go in more in depth than what Katie and I are doing. But I want to encourage you to be a part of that with us. And so as we're going through the book together as a church and as a family... Just know that that's going to be out there for you, some sort of resources to kind of see some intros into the books. And with that being said, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we just come to you, Lord, and we ask for wisdom. We ask for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Help us to forgive those who trespass against us as you've forgiven us for our trespasses. Lord, I just pray that as we're going through these testings, these trials, that we would be delivered from the evil one, that we would run from the evil one that has James 4, 7 says we submit ourselves to you, God, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. So, Lord, I pray for this time. I pray for this message that it would be all about you, that we would run to you, that real people would look to you for truth, not their own things. You address everything. There's nothing you can't a deal with or address. And so we pray, Lord, that your wisdom would be given to all of us who will seek you. Lord, we pray for our first responders, those who are on the front lines fighting this virus. Lord, we continue to pray for our government officials. As you know, I don't like to call them my leaders. They're my servants. They serve me. They serve us. They don't lead us. And so, Lord, we pray for them that they would look to you as servants, true servants of you. That's what a real leader is. Jesus came not to serve, but or not to be served, but to serve. That's what real leadership looks like. So, Lord, I just pray for the people who are going through this. Pray for those who are sick, that you would heal them, that your will be done. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I'm going to go through something with us. I'm going to introduce you or do an introduction to the book of James. 
because I want to introduce you to it. It's, it's, it's one of my customs to do when we start a new sermon series is to really understand the book. And I'm going to go through several of the questions. The who, what, when, where, why. We're going to look at those questions so that you can better understand where James is coming from. Why did he write the book? Many people don't understand the book of James or they have a lot of issues with the book of James. I want you guys to understand the background of James. This is a man who is extremely skeptical of Jesus Christ. Didn't believe him to be the Messiah. And yet he writes this book, this proverbian, if that's even a word, this proverb-style New Testament book, the way you can have wisdom in practical senses today. And so I want to encourage you, as you're reading through this, to really ask the questions. Why is he writing this? Who is he writing it to? What did he write it about? Where is he writing it from? All that context, the literal context, the historical context, is very, very, very important. Because if you don't know the context, you won't understand the scriptures and why he wrote what he wrote. And many people misinterpret scripture when they don't understand context. Hence, context is king. And so I encourage you guys that you'll get a very practical application through all of these sermons through the book of James. And in its ways of how Christians should be and should act. Those who are in the faith, those who believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. So let's look at the first question. We're going to look at the who. Who wrote this book? This book was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And the reason that we believe that, because many scholars debate this. There were four Jameses in the New Testament. There's James, the son of Zebedee. There's James, the half-brother of Jesus. And then there's two lesser Jameses. You can find them in Luke and Acts. However, I'm not going to really focus on getting into those issues. But the best explanation that I've seen and read and heard and agree with is James the half-brother of Jesus because the other Jameses don't fit the actual narrative of the author of the book. In fact, according to several, and I'm quoting Charles, Dr. Charles Ryrie here, it's unlikely James the son of Zebedee wrote the book because he was martyred in AD 44. You know this because of Acts chapter 12, verse 2. This book, which we're going to get to in a minute, was written in AD 45 or 50. But the authoritative tone of the letter not only rules out the two lesser Jameses, but points to the half-brother of Jesus because he was the recognized leader of the true church in Jerusalem. And we know this because of Acts 12, we know it because of Acts 15, and we know it because of Acts 21, 18. The other major issue of why we think this book was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, is because of the similarities to the letter and the speech he did at the Council of Jerusalem in the book of Acts. There's very much a similarity of his speech to this letter and how those two marry together. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this book. And that's going to be important later on because remember, I just said it, James is a skeptic of who Jesus Christ is. He doesn't really believe him to be the Messiah until he sees the resurrected Christ. And then he writes a very powerful book, a very applicable book to all Christians. We're going to see who he actually wrote it to. In fact, that's the question we're going to move on to is, that's the who, who wrote the book. We're going to move on to the what. What's this book all about? 
There are a couple of things in this book you need to be aware of when it comes to this book. And it's all about, number one, we're going to look at the testing of your faith and what that produces. Number two, we're going to look at the sin of partiality or making someone who is rich more important than someone who is poor. Number three, we're going to move on to faith and works. How do those two things work together? Number four, we're going to look at our tongues and the power of our speech and the power that it has in this world. Number five, James is going to touch on true wisdom and Jesus Christ and how that wisdom can overcome our sins. Six, he's going to warn us about living like the world lives. And seven, he's going to end this book on patience and suffering and prayer of the faithful. That's what this book is about. Let's turn to the when. When was this book written? The agreed upon by most theological scholars is around 45 to 50 AD, like I said earlier. Now that's important to know because that's about 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we start to see books being written to the churches. Now remind, remind yourself of this. This is just one book that's been written. There was others. Paul wrote other letters to the churches, other epistles. But we're within a time frame of a fledgling church 15 years. And God is writing to these people through James, and he's telling them to encourage them to, to look to him. And there's all these different things going on in the world today, and they're a persecuted group. They're very much a persecuted group. They're a fledgling the way group and they're not really called Christians or Christ followers until we see it in, in Antioch and you can read about that in the book of Acts but like we've been saying in our daily updates about this book it's an important time for the church it's a very important time for the church because they need to find common ground they read a book together so they can grow together while they're apart, while they're separated. And you're going to learn why they're separated here shortly. But they would meet in houses together. And they would actually read various letters sent from the apostles and teachers. And they would worship God together. And they would pray together. They would break bread together. This is very much the early church, the house church movement. And this is what they're doing. They learn to love one another well as they learn to love their neighbors well. That's one of the big themes here. And so that's the when, around 45 to 50 AD. Let's look at the where. With James staying in Jerusalem, it would make sense that it was written in Jerusalem, but he writes in the first chapter, I write to the 12 tribes or dispersed Jewish Christians throughout the Mediterranean world. He's writing it so that all the tribes, the 12 of them throughout the Mediterranean world, would read this letter and be able to see what God was saying to them. So being in Jerusalem, he writes this for the new churches that are staying to pop, or starting to pop up, and he's writing it so they can understand how to live in their dispersion or being away from each other. It was hard to be a new church, like I said, or religion back in the day, because people didn't respect you. They didn't want you around. The Jews didn't like you. And the Romans definitely didn't like you. And so you have in the Middle East a very hot-button issue of a new religion popping up in the minds of people who were religious. 
And yet the followers of Christ are trying to learn how to love one another well, and that's what they're going through. That's a little bit of the why, why the book was written. So that he can grow in strength and comfort and knowledge of the Lord. But here's the why. So we talked about the where. It was written in Jerusalem to the whole 12 tribes of the dispersion of the Christians throughout the Mediterranean. But here's the why. Why did James write this book? Well, I've already given you some themes and reasons of why, but here's the most important reason. He wrote the book for the practical aspect of how to live as a Christian in the world. He wrote it so that our lives, we live our lives through our faith, and that produces works, good works in advance for us to do. He wrote it so that we would believe that our faith works, but not that our works is our faith. And there's a big difference there. Works do not save us. Let me say it again. Works do not save us. Our faith does. Hence, faith without works is dead. That's why so many people consider this to be the Proverbs in the New Testament. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. When you go through a trial, and this is what James is going to talk about, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. That means that the early church is really going through some tough times. They're being persecuted by many, and they needed to hear from the disciples and the apostles so they can learn and be encouraged. They needed to know in the midst of the trials that there's someone else in control. That's the meaning of sovereignty of God. As Dr. Charles Riley puts it this way, Ultimately, God is in complete control of all things, Though he may choose to let certain events happen according to natural laws that he has ordained. God has a plan and is in control. Psalm 135.6 says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. So these people needed to be reminded of who's in control. We need to be reminded in the midst of our trials currently happening in this nation, who's in control. Not some government official. Not some senator. Not some congressperson. Not even the president or the vice president. God is in control. And he ordains whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. So these people needed reminded of who's in control as they're going through life in these difficult times. James is writing to them so they can see and remember the truth, Jesus Christ. We need to know that God's in control and he has all of our needs and our wants and our desires under control. And he's going to take care of them. That's the who, what, when, where and why of the book of James. That's the introduction. I wanted to read now for you the first four verses and discuss what James is trying to talk about in the first four verses of the book. So as we go through that, I want you to really listen to the words of what James says. So let's go ahead and read the passage. James chapter 1, verse 4. James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Verse 2, count it all joy, 
my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. When you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Couple of things. What is joy? And how can we have joy in the middle of trials? That's the real question. What is steadfastness? So we're counting it as all joy in the middle of all these trials because it produces steadfastness in us. What is that? What is joy? Trials are hard. Trials are hard and they often test our faith and our patience. They can and will cause us to call into question the very existence of who God is. They do. They cause us to call into question the very character of who God is. I mean, is God good when so many people die of something so easily fixed in our minds or we could change? I mean, here's some of the other questions. Why would God allow for so many to suffer and have pain? Why won't a good God stop all of this bad thing from happening? I mean, if God were good, as so many Christians claim, then why didn't he stop this bad thing from happening to me or to my family? That's the questions that many of people are asking of God right now. That's the question that many of us who believe in God are asking right now. Do you have an answer, church? Do you have an answer to the questions? Well, you just got to have faith isn't enough for me. For many, there needs to be something else. And I think some of the questions are really good because God's not responsible for our actions. Let me say that again. God is not responsible for your actions. God gives us free will. He does know what you're going through before you even go through it. He knows what you're going to say before you even say it. Because he's all-knowing. If he decided to stop everything from being dumb, done, or if he stopped everyone from, from doing stupid things, when and where would he start is my question. When and where would God start? And who would he start with? If he starts with me, that wouldn't be free will in my opinion. But if we started with somebody else, maybe it would be. See how hypocritical that is? That wouldn't be free will if he decided to stop people from making their own choices. It wouldn't be free will. These are not easy answers. And why should Christians count them as joy when something or something, someone bad happens or does something bad? Why do you count it all joy? Well, he tells us right away. Joy because it produces steadfastness in us. 
in verse 4, and it has a full effect in helping us be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing in Jesus Christ, who is perfect and complete. Trials come in this life. Job, during his testing and trials, said this in the midst of him, Though he, being God, slay me, yet I will praise him. If you don't know the story of Job, you have to go about in the Old Testament and read it. Jeremiah had some issues with trials, and he was considered the weeping prophet. He said this about God in chapter 31 of his book, verse 13, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. In the midst of trials, God will take care of you and love you. Maybe not the way you think he should, but trust me, he's there. Maybe not the way your friends think you should, but trust me, he's there. He's in control. That's the truth. And you have to tell yourself the truth when you're asking why. You can't believe the lies. Don't listen to the lies. Because the father of lies, it all comes from the pit of hell. This is happening because you've sinned, Job. This is happening because you've done something wrong. Fill in the blank. God must not love you because you keep on sinning. It's not true. Yet while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the truth. Now, does that mean we should go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. find it very interesting. What we have today is a very big trial going on. And everyone in the nation is feeling the trial. I used to ask myself when I was reading scripture, how in the world would the whole nation of Israel weep or mourn? And now I know. And so do you. We can make it through this time because we have God. God is there and he's willing to help those who call on his name. As the writer of Hebrew puts it, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Let me say that one again who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may, grow weary, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We haven't even shed our blood or come to the point of shedding our blood for sin. So trials produce a steadfastness in us. Joseph had the same kind of issues. His brothers hated him and sold him into slavery, yet God took care of him. In fact, my favorite verse in all of the scriptures is Genesis 50, 20. Let me read it for you. Joseph's telling his brothers this, As for you, you meant evil against me. They sold him into slavery. But God meant it for good. In the midst of trials, people do stupid things. 
Look up the definition of stupid. It's probably not nice for a pastor to say because it seems mean. I could just say they show a great lack of intelligence or common sense. It's the same definition. So people do stupid things. They even do evil things. However, God's in control and we can rest on that fact. We can rest on that fact that God's in control. I'm going to say it one more time. Rest in God being in control. When you were a kid, you didn't question whether your parents were going to pay their bills so that you could get a roof over your head or food in your mouth. Maybe some of you did, but you're still alive today. How did you make it? Run the race that's set before you. Don't grow weary of God or things in this world. Let me share you a story about someone or something not giving up and the great things that it has accomplished. I think it's very important for Christians to hear. Craig Brian Larson writes this. This is what he writes. In 1972, NASA launched the exploratory space probe Pioneer 10. According to Leon Jeroff in Time magazine, the satellite's primary mission was to reach Jupiter, photograph the planet and its moons, and beam the data to Earth about Jupiter's magnetic field, radiation belts, and atmosphere. Scientists regarded this as a bold plan. It's 1972. For those of you who were born in the 2000s, we didn't have cell phones really back then. So your little phone that you got now, remember when this is happening. So they're calling this a bold plan. For the time on Earth, at that time, no satellite on Earth had ever gone beyond Mars. And they feared the asteroid belt would destroy the satellite before it could reach its target. But Pioneer 10 accomplished its mission and much, much, much more. In fact, swinging past the giant planet in November 1973, Jupiter's immense gravity hurled Pioneer 10 at a rate of speed so fast towards the edge of the solar system that one billion miles from the sun, Pioneer 10 passed Saturn. At two billion miles, it hurled past Uranus. Neptune at nearly 3 billion miles. Pluto almost 4 billion miles. By 1997, 25 years after its launch, Pioneer 10 was more than 6 billion miles from the sun. And despite that immense distance, Pioneer 10 continued to beam back radio signals to scientists on Earth. Perhaps most remarkable, those signals emanated from an 8-watt transmitter. An 8-watt transmitter, which radiates about as much power as a bedroom nightlight and takes more than nine hours to reach Earth. The little satellite that could was not qualified to do what it did. Engineers designed Pioneer 10 with a useful light of life of just three years, but it kept going and going and going. By simple longevity, its tiny 8-watt transmitter radio accomplished more than anyone thought possible. So when we offer ourselves to serve the Lord, God can work even through someone with 8-watt abilities. God cannot work, however, through someone who quits.
We're enduring a very tough trial right now as a nation. We're being asked to stay in our homes, not do all the entertaining things that we've grown accustomed to doing. I'm asking us, all of us, to not let this opportunity slip by. You have an opportunity to get to know God. You have an opportunity to find joy in the midst of these trials that you're going through. Run to God in these trials. So you can have what God is talking about here, a steadfastness. A joy in the midst of these trials. Because you know that God's in control. He's going to take care of our wants and our needs. I know that's a tough ask. I know. I know it's a tough ask. But remember, steadfastness is and produces something that is unbelievable. It's just, it just might maybe help you through these trials, steadfastness and joy. But wait, you're asking yourself, what is steadfastness? I haven't defined it yet, right? Steadfastness is hippoame in Greek. It's the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances to endure. Steadfastness is the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances to endure. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 says, Endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. James is telling us to let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Christians are not to pretend that suffering is not real or painful. It is. They are. Pain and suffering are real. It happened because of the fall. To find joy in the midst of our suffering is a very difficult thing, but you can find joy when you believe the truth of who God is. God is good. God is love. And the suffering will end. It's an important lesson here. Sometimes God's purpose in sending us trials and suffering is to strengthen our faith and trust in Him. Psalm 119.71 says this, It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes or decrees. That's where the prosperity gospel people, the health and wealth garbage people, Get it wrong. I have no problem telling them that. It's absolute garbage to tell people that God is all about health and wealth and prosperity. Many of the times when people talk about health and wealth and that disgusting message, they talk about, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know the context of where Paul wrote that message? He was sitting in a jail cell. Not like what you think of today in America, guys. They would poop and pee in their jail cells. It was a disgusting place. And he wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He knew what it was like to have plenty and have nothing. And he knew in the midst of all of that, the joy he found was that God was in control. It's not about health and wealth. It's not about what looks successful. Stop running to that. I'm asking you. I'm begging you. 
Success in America today is not the success that God is talking about. It's not about how many people come to your church or how much money your church has. It's about is your church teaching the truth of Jesus Christ, not some garbage like God's going to make you healthy and wealthy if you pray hard enough. That's a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And stop believing it. Too many people believe that since this church has tons and tons of people that go to it, they must be successful. No. They have a lot of people that want to be tickled in their ears. They want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to hear the truth that trials and pain and suffering are real in this world. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Pain and ultimately suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. A deaf world to him who are not willing to listen to him. And so he takes away your precious sporting events. He takes away your precious movies. He takes away your precious eating out. And he says, come run to me. I'm the one you're going to find joy in. How many in the church believe that truth? Yeah, I sound angry right now because you know what? After three years, actually a long time, after 20 years, I have met more people in my life who care about their wealth and their health than they do about knowing who God is. Stop it. Learn to run to God. Learn to look to Him. Stop looking to your creature comforts. Stop worshiping all the stuff you think that's important. Start worshiping the real important thing. Jesus Christ, who died, who endured the cross for us. So that we can be saved. We can go to heaven. Those who believe, receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, get a chance to go to heaven forever. And those who don't, those who reject Jesus, wide is the gate to hell. And many don't believe that. I do. And I'm scared for them. You don't have your entertaining sporting events right now. You don't have blockbuster movies. So don't waste your time. Don't waste your opportunity right now. My father, who is a very wise man, once said to me several times, and I love this line, you have an opportunity to learn. This is an opportunity right now for you to learn. He said that to us. I love it because it's true. We have an opportunity to learn right now. Learn about God. Seek God, look to God, and find joy in God. The joy we have been talking about today, that's what you get with God. And you're going to learn in the trials and the sufferings that, well, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. God is good. Though you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. And my desire for all of us hearing these sermons online would find and know the truth, even in the midst of trials, because God's word is true. God is sovereign and he's in control. God gives to all those who ask for wisdom. God gives to all those who ask for wisdom generously without reproach. But that's next week.
So I've jumped ahead a little bit, but that's for next week. This week, I'm asking us to really truly look to God for wisdom in the midst of trials. Find the joy. Find the ability to find comfort. It's not always about happiness. Joy is knowing that God is in control. That's true joy. Like Job found. Like Joseph found. Like so many others in the Bible. That if you have your time right now, I see people saying, I miss my sports. I miss my movies. I miss my... You know what? You have an opportunity of a lifetime to learn something amazing. Where you're going to find fulfillment, not in your TV shows. I see people post things on Facebook all the time. I've run out of movies to watch on Netflix. Really? Do you guys have any suggestions on how I can move next to the, to the next thing I can binge watch? Yeah, I got something for you. Read the Bible. I do that already. No, no, no. I'm seriously telling you, sit down and read the Bible. There's amazing stories and God hits on everything you can think of. And it's true. Find joy. Because when you find joy and you count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness let it have its full effect in your life so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let steadfastness work in your life during these trials. Find joy. Next week, we're going to talk about, like I said, wisdom. And God gives it to us generously without reproach. Let me close us in prayer. I hope to see you all next week. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're in the midst of a trial right now. We're struggling right now. Lord, we want to we want to take this trial and we want to we want to find joy in it, which results in steadfastness, which leads to maturity or being perfect and full, being complete. It develops in us. Lord, I know you wrote to the Jewish Christians throughout the scattered world, the Mediterranean world, but this book really, it applies to all of us. Father God, I pray for those who don't know you, that they would come to know you, that they would find the joy of knowing who you are, the Father who's in control of all things, who is good, who doesn't take away free will, who allows us to be in relation with you. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us. Christianity is not about bad people becoming good people. It's about dead people, spiritually dead people becoming alive. I pray, Lord, that you take the heart of those who are listening. If they have a heart of stone, turn it into a heart of flesh. 
I pray, Lord, that we would stop running to things that look successful and start running to things that are successful, which is you, Jesus Christ. I pray and thank you for this day. I pray and thank you for this time. We pray for this nation. We pray for the first responders. We pray for the doctors, the hospitals, the nurses, everybody who's involved, the family members. Lord, you can rid this place of disease and sickness. But sometimes you use trial and pain as a megaphone for people who are deaf to you so that they know you are there. Help us to not forego the learning of you in the midst of these trials. We pray and thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' holy name, amen.